Hello and welcome to this podcast from Bright Club Cambridge Bodies with me, Ginny Smith. Coming up, problems in 16-dimensional space, what Finding Nemo should really have been like, and the art of samurai persuasion. But first, we have Richard Tomset telling us more about maths porn than I've ever wanted to know, and how to prevent STDs using computational networks. I think they put me on first because I am the most exotic act of the night. I'm not from Cambridge, as you can tell from my accent. I'm from Newcastle. <laughs> I'm a part physicist. I'm part computer scientist. Oh, man. And I, um, I actually now do neuroscience. Um, and how do you get from the link from physics to neuroscience? Well, it's a bit tenuous. But um, it doesn't involve me wanting to solve the mysteries of the brain or... Uh, cure fabulous diseases. No, it's in fact because I have a very bizarre porn habit, <laughs> which I'm now going to describe to you in detail. <laughs> and <laughs> my mum's looking at me from the third <laughs> row. <laughs> I've wiped the computer. Twice. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> a, few, a few years ago, I, um, I found myself unemployed. And as a young, strapping young man, uh, unemployed does, who spend a lot of time surfing the internet, looking at porn. It's perfectly healthy, perfectly, perfectly normal. My particular genre of uh, preference is actually mathematical porn, um, <laughs> which usually involves something like a, uh, a sexy professor bending his student over an abacus while a, a teaching assistant pleasures themselves in the corner with a set square. I told you I was going to describe you in detail. But um, <laughs> after a while, you know, it gets very repetitive. There's not a lot of imagination involved in most pornography, as I'm sure you will all know. Um, not even in maths porn. So I, I started searching for the really, like, the really nasty stuff. The really, really kind of gory... Well, not, okay, not quite that bad. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the really hardcore, preferably Swedish... Uh, so I obviously did exactly what anyone else would do in this situation and fired up Google Scholar, uh, <laughs> typed in my search terms, and um, I actually came across a very interesting-looking paper uh, published in Nature 2001. It's called The Web of Human Sexual Contacts. This, is, this exists. You can look it up on Google Scholar. And uh, it's uh, a group of Swedish scientists, Swedish, ideal, um, has <laughs> gone around asking... Swedish adults who they were fucking, basically. That's their research paper. And they had a very interesting finding from this, which is that most people have sex with a few people during their lifetime, maybe three or four. A few more people have sex with about, say, ten. But a small number of lucky bastards <laughs> have sex with hundreds of people, literally hundreds. There was a guy who put on his form that he had had sex with 800 people, to which the researchers replied, <coughs> yeah. Like, like hell. But um, they still include him as a data point, to be fair. Um, and why is this interesting? Well, partly because we're all incredibly nosy as a population. Uh, but also because if you know something like that, you know something about the structure of how people are doing things with each other, you can target interventions to try and stop the spread of sexually transmitted infections much more effectively. So, for example, if you didn't know about this kind of structure in your network, you might say, try and prevent the spread of AIDS or any other STI by uh, randomly going out into the population and trying to convert people to Catholicism, for example, which is a very effective <laughs> way of uh, stopping the spread of STIs. Um, but if you know about the structure of your network, you can target your interventions to these hub nodes, as they're called, um, and you reduce the resources that you use in your intervention, and you also uh, maximize its effectiveness. Ideal, brilliant. Um, and it's not all that obvious about what this structure is going to be. For example, in a different population, uh, a couple of scientists, um, well, I, I say scientists, I've actually, <laughs> I've actually seen their pictures. Uh, they came up on my Google search. <laughs> I, what I really mean is two middle-aged men with dubious-looking beards <laughs> went into a school. Um, God knows how they got <laughs> through the ethics for this. But they, uh, they asked all the teenagers in the school which of the other teenagers in the school that they had been having sex with. And they made a nice little graph. And the structure of this network is actually very different. So in a school, you have different social dynamics. Because if you have sex with someone or you go out with someone, then 
if any of your friends go out with them, that's, that's a massive social faux pas. In the wider population, that's, it's less enclosed. It's less likely to happen. So um, in a school, in fact, you get long links of students forming in this network, which obviously means that you have to target your interventions differently if you want to stop STI spread through your school, which I presume you do. Um, <laughs> and there are other examples. Of this. There's, there's one particularly, another particularly nice serendipitous one where they'd found a, um, they were studying a gonorrhea outbreak in the Midwest, I think, and um, they, they constructed the network for this. And um, it wasn't, didn't have any kind of obvious structure until you looked at the kind of the central little part of the network and noticed that, in fact, and I kid you not, the name of the motel that all these particular people had been attending was the Blue Swallow Motel. Uh, so they just installed a condom machine there, basically. <laughs> Problem solved. Uh, Yes, so networks, they're very useful to study this kind of thing. They're not only used for sex and social science, you can also study airline networks. I don't know if you saw on the BBC website, there's an amazing visualization of the airline network uh, that kind of outlined the globe. Um, you can look at road networks, rail networks, look at where bottlenecks might occur in production lines, all this kind of thing. It's a very useful tool, um, including in neuroscience. Well, we got there in the end. Um, <laughs> So the brain is, can be viewed as an interconnected kind of network of individual brain cells. So an individual brain cell might make uh, 10,000, some of them even make up to 100,000 connections with other brain cells. And they all, this is all um, in how the brain processes information, basically. So if we know about that network, we can deduce a lot <coughs> about um, how the brain processes information. And then when it goes wrong, we, can, we know more about what we can do to help people. So, that's really what I do. I don't sit in my office all day looking at porn on Google Scholar. Um, so, <laughs> so there's an, ama there's a f there's an incredible um, brain imaging technique called diffusion tensor imaging. And there's an even more fancy one now called diffusion spectrum imaging. Um, and it's, you can non-invasively, so you just put someone in a brain scanner and you scan them in a, in a kind of fairly standard way. And you can actually extract the fibers that run between different areas of the brain at an incredibly high resolution. So you don't even have to chop someone's head off and count them, which is what they used to have to do. <laughs> um, you can, you can, so you can study this in patients, you can study this in healthy people, you can make comparisons, it's all very good and useful. Uh, before you, there's a um, particular region in the brain that's of, of, of great interest to me because it's involved in epilepsy, which is kind of what I, my, my main interest is. And um, you would think that in epilepsy, because when epilepsy happens, it starts off in one place usually and then spreads very rapidly throughout the brain and there's abnormal activity going on all over the place. And, and so you need a kind of a central hub bit which will transmit this uh, pathological activity throughout the rest of the brain at high speed. So it needs to be highly connected. And there's a particular area in the brain which um, these seizures seem to go through quite often. It's called the hippocampus. And so even from the May name, you might get a hint that it's uh, potentially a bit of a, a slutty brain part. Of course, Hippos, the Greek for horse, and Campos, uh, the Greek for Catherine the Great. <laughs> Small number of Russian pseudo-history fans in the audience, good. Um, so yes, yeah, so what I guess you want to know now is, did they find, did they find that the hippocampus is a hub of the brain? Is, is it really that, is that the, the reason why it spreads? Well, I'm not actually going to tell you now, because I think my time might be up, and frankly, I'd much rather leave you with an image of a role Russian leader getting fucked to death by a horse. Thanks very much. <laughs> Good night. I wanted to know more about Richard's own work, so I caught up with him to find out what he does when he isn't watching porn. I'm a PhD student at Newcastle University, and I'm visiting Cambridge for three months because I'm doing a policy placement at the Centre for Science and Policy, so something completely different, basically. So what's your PhD on? It's in computational neuroscience, which kind of sounds all fancy and stuff, but it's less interesting than what the real proper neuroscientists do, because I get to basically sit in an office all day with a computer. We are working with experimental scientists to try and use mathematical and computational models to explain electrical dynamics of the brain. So, for example, we look at epilepsy as a disease of the electrical dynamics of the brain. When you stick an electrode on someone's head, you can see there's, there's something funny going on in the electrical patterns that you measure. And so what we try and do is look at what's going on on the individual brain cell level and when those brain cells talk to each other, how those patterns emerge and why an epileptic person's brain is different from a healthy person's brain. And then that hopefully leads to better treatments, basically. The brain is a remarkably complex organ. 
How do you go about modelling something like that on a computer? With difficulty. <laughs> That's one of the key difficulties and debates in the field, actually, is how you set up your models so that it can give you some kind of insight that isn't obvious, but also remain simple enough so that you can analyse it effectively. So what we do is we basically abstract down. My level is kind of looking at individual brain cells and small networks of these. So one brain cell will send out connections to about 10,000 on average other brain cells which is pretty complex in itself and you have to make some statistical assumptions basically about how those connections are laid out. The anatomists will have done a lot of counting on these things and said all right these kinds of cells connect to hundreds of other cells which involves hours and hours of tedious work in the lab for them but I just then steal their data and make a statistical model of how these things get connected up and then run it on a computer it connects my model up and then each brain cell is kind of like an electrical circuit in itself. So that electrical circuit is doing complex non-linear things based on the input it gets from other cells, and then it sends out messages to those other cells that it's connected to. Our level of looking at it is looking at the mathematical equations, effectively, that describe the behaviour of an individual nerve cell based on the input that it's getting and the output that it gives to other cells. So what are the benefits of doing it this way on a computer rather than looking at an actual brain? Looking at actual brains, like you say, they're very, very complicated and it's very difficult to get at bits of them that are interesting. So you can kill a brain and then chop it up and measure things about it. You can study the brain when it's still alive and you can do actually remarkable things while brains are still living and doing things. But you always have some kind of trade-off about the level of detail that you can get information at and you can never measure the whole thing at one time. You can look at a very detailed small section or you can get a kind of gross picture of what's going on at the larger level so the goal with using computational models effectively is to try and narrow down the different possibilities that experimentalists come up with to explain their findings some of us try and use the models to run kind of computational experiments run lots of different parameters that could possibly be the case in the brain but the experimentalists don't know because they can't get access to that information. So we try it all out in our models, see what seems most likely, and then that guides the experimentalists in their future experiments so that they can do something that they think will be more more worthwhile. So you can sort of plug in different scenarios and see which one comes out looking like the real brain? Yeah, you have to be careful with that because, as you said before, it's so complex. There are many different things that you can vary that might cause an output that looks similar, but you're not necessarily sure which of those things that you've varied is actually what is going on in the brain. So you also have to be careful there when you're playing around with these models that you stick to the biology and you define your question very clearly. So how do you then work out which of your models does correlate with the real brain? You then have to kind of go back to the experimentalists and they'll test it out effectively. If you've got very simple models, it's much easier. The more complex you get, the more difficult it is. You can run thousands and thousands of different iterations of your simulation, which takes hours and hours of computer time. And you can constrain the parameter sets that you go through based on some previous biological knowledge. And there are very clever computational algorithms that you can use to direct your search of the parameter space, as it's called, in a more useful way than just a random search through it. So tell me about your epilepsy work. What are you looking at? So I'm kind of just starting on this now. The lab in Newcastle is very exciting because they actually get slices taken out of human patients who have undergone surgery for intractable epilepsy. So they can't treat it with drugs anymore. They've had to operate on them and try and remove the bit of the brain that they think is initiating the seizure in these patients. And when they do that, they sometimes have to take out a bit of what they think is healthy brain tissue at the same time. That's kind of their control set of brains. They've got healthy brains from humans because you can't just chop out an actual healthy human's brain and they've got the epileptic focal tissue and then they can keep that alive for around about a day they then do experiments on that where they put electrodes in and measure the electrical activity in different situations to try and find out more about the underlying processes of what's going on after they've done that they fix the tissue and look at it under a microscope and look at the structural changes so you've got two bits of information the dynamical kind of patterns that you see and you've got the structural differences that you can look at under a microscope. And what we're really doing is bridging the gap in between that. So there are lots and lots of structural changes that happen, and the electrical changes that are measured are quite different, and then they're not sure which of the structural changes is most important, which happens first in development, whether they all are crucial or whether you can just focus on one and the others are resulting from that. So we are trying to now model those different changes there to bridge that gap that exists. 
And if you could find out which of these changes was most important or which came first, what would that mean for epilepsy sufferers? Well, if you could do it from looking at it from the perspective of development, if you could isolate the changes that happened first and that are most important, you'd be able potentially then to target either drug therapies or potentially surgical interventions in a much more refined way. So at the moment, you either take drugs and it affects the whole of your brain all the time and then eventually the effects might wear off even, or you cut out a chunk of brain in a fairly brutal manner effectively. If you knew more about what was going on through time and how it related to the activity, then you might be able to stop the changes before they got too serious. You might be able to identify those changes in people. My supervisor is looking on a different level as well, where they take a scan of the whole brain, and then they look at the connections between different areas in the entire brain using incredibly clever physics techniques. And then you can look at an individual patient's brain footprint from this connectivity that they have. And the plan there is hopefully to be able to run a simulation on that and isolate the most important connections in that system so instead of having to cut out a chunk of brain you could do very targeted surgery on a small number of links which would be much less disruptive. Next we have Max Gray, a marine biologist working on cleaner fish which are apparently able to predict the future. I am a marine biologist, um, which is fantastic, and when I decided that marine biology is what I wanted to do, I, the logical choice for me was to come to Cambridge, uh, a town renowned for its, its beautiful coastline and balmy <laughs> climate. Um, no, when, basically, um, what I'm going to deal with first is the fact there's a lot of misconceptions about people studying marine biology, possibly the thing about being marriable. We don't get paid very much. Um, <laughs> no, the, the main thing is that everybody thinks we spend all of our time in the tropics somewhere, going diving, going swimming, and you know, stereotype is swimming with dolphins. And this, this simply isn't true. I spend almost no time with dolphins. Um, <laughs> no, um, there, are, there are a lot of things people, people ask me when they find out I'm a marine biologist. The first of which is, is about the dolphins. And while I'm on the subject, there, there are some fascinating things about dolphins that I, that I would like to share with you. I don't study them. I don't even spend any time with them. But they are brilliant. And recently, somebody has, somebody has studied uh, dolphin communication to the point where they now believe, this woman now believes she can communicate with dolphins in their own language. <laughs> and this is, genuine, this is genuinely real science. I'm not making it up. It's been published uh, remarkably. And I... I Actually, no, I, do, I do genuinely think it might be true, which is brilliant. Because, you know, now at some point in the future, I'll give it, you know, 20, 30 years, however long the technology takes to develop, dolphins will be able to tell us where in the lagoon the pirates have hidden the treasure and whether or not a dolphin, uh, sorry, a small boy has uh, fallen off a cliff. Um, so Flipper could become real, which is marvellous. Um, but no, one of, the things, one of the other things people ask me because of popular culture, is about finding Nemo and whether or not the inaccuracies in this film um, annoy me. And of course they don't. It's, it's a children's film. It's like asking somebody who, you know, any other zoologist, whether or not the inaccuracies in The Lion King annoy them. I mean, no, nobody expects to go to the, um, go to the savannah, go on safari and see a, you know, 15-piece musical number by uh, <laughs> giraffes and zebras. It's simply not going to happen. That being said, um, the inaccuracies do do actually annoy me. Um, there, there are two there are two key things. Some of uh, one of which you may have heard before, because it's you know anybody who talks about film inaccuracies may have may have mentioned it. And that is that anemone fish, when when they are are born, a male, and when they become the most dominant individual in their little anemone society, they undergo spontaneous sex change and become female. And so Nemo's dad would have become his mum, which is peculiar, but there it is. But that's not the weirdest thing. It's actually what would have happened in that situation is once a new dominant individual occurs in these kind of societies, they would eat any remaining eggs or offspring um, so that the next load are, you know, all, of, all belong to them. And that is known as filial cannibalism. So... If you were to remake Finding Nemo <laughs> as an accurate scientific portrayal of reef uh, communities, you would have Nemo, after he gets lost, 
being pursued by a possibly vengeful transsexual parent <laughs> wanting to eat him. And I've come up with a title for this film, and it's called I'm Coming For You, Nemo. So now, now I'll actually deal with what I study personally, and that is cleaner fish. I study cleaner fish, not the little, little fish you find in, in uh, beauty spas that are essentially starving animals that are eating your flesh. Um, no, I study, study fish that's uh, a genuinely clean, what are known as client fish. And these client fish come to them um, for a service, not in a, no, 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 not in a, not in a, uh, Massage, happy ending sort of a way. No, they have, they have parasites that live on the outside of them, um, on the outside of their bodies, shall we say? Um, and they have them removed. The cleaners, the cleaners just bite these, bite these little parasites off. What makes the system interesting is that the, the cleaners cheat a lot. And they do this by, instead of biting off a, a parasite of some description, they, they take a bite out of the mucus that covers a fish. Um, as some of you may know, all fish are covered in a thin layer of mucus at all times. Um, yeah, they sound delicious now, don't they? Um, so yes, they, they take a bite out of this mucus and, and the fish don't like it. So this whole, this whole system, imagine, if you will, if, if that doesn't quite uh, make sense, as it may not, because you know, it's hard to imagine these kind of things. Imagine you, you get a cat because you have a mouse problem. You have these pests, you have a lot of mice. Um, so you get a cat to take them off your hands, as it will. And instead of always feeding on, on mice, this, this cat hangs around your kitchen and, and eats milk and gets lazy and doesn't do a good job. It's annoying, right? However, I thought about this, and when I made this analogy, I realized it's not, it maybe isn't as helpful as actually just describing what the, the fish do themselves. Because in order for this to be relevant, you'd have to have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of mice kicking around, like literally swarming all over you. And you would have to, I don't know, you'd basically have to secrete milk from somewhere on your skin. Which, all right, maybe it's not that bad an analogy. Um, but no, so what, so what I study about these fish are the, like, essentially the reasons they don't cheat to the point where the, the clients just go, no, I've had enough, I'm off somewhere else. Um, which will happen occasionally, and that kind of limits what goes on. It stops the fish cheating too much. Um, they do various other things. I mean, they, they do get directly punished when they misbehave, like naughty children. Um, and they also, they also sign and kind of self-regulate when they, they clean in, in pairs, usually when they're mated, and, and the, the dominant male will essentially punish the female when, when she misbehaves, which is probably not acceptable in our society anymore. Um, <laughs> anyway, they're fish. What do we care? Um, but no, so what I study is, is the, the main thing about my PhD is I'm looking at another potential mechanism, which is basically whether or not the fish moderate their behavior based on what they expect will happen next. Idea, uh, essentially, whether or not they're gonna interact with the same fish again, if they think they might clean that fish at some point in the future, will they behave themselves better? So I've run a load of experiments to figure out whether this is the case. Basically, what I'm doing here is trying to find out if fish can predict the future. <laughs> Does anybody remember the, like, they used to be, you used to find them in crackers, the little, like, red cellophane fish <laughs> you'd hold in your hand and it would curl up and it was sold as a fortune-telling fish? There are some parallels there to, to what I study. <laughs> However, they obviously can't tell the future properly. It's much more kind of vague and, and nebulous concept than that. But if fish were to be able to tell the future, I wonder how they would do it. I mean, clearly, you can't use tarot cards. They'd get very soggy, and it would be quite inefficient. And astrology, let us assume for now that even if this worked, um, you can't see the stars underwater. That would be quite inefficient. And even if you could, what, how would you tell the difference? What would, you know, whether A met B, what would happen? I mean, they're all Pisces anyway. <laughs> hey, that one was mostly for me. Um, <laughs> But no, I have made a few interesting findings um, through my research. And the main, the main factor here is what I've, the, the one thing, if I've only found out one thing about my species of fish, is that these fish are all dicks. They're really, like, truly annoying, like not, not actually phalluses. Um, although they're, they're, there are species of fish that are basically 
just a floating cock and balls. Um, <laughs> it's a species called the anglerfish. The male anglerfish swims around. It's basically, as I've mentioned, a cock and balls. Um, and it will just attach onto a female anglerfish in her fishy bits, I guess. Um, and, yeah, still, it's still relatively clean. Um, <laughs> thanks, Nick. Um, yes, no, and, and then it will kind of wither away and, and get absorbed into her body. It's quite peculiar. Anyway, back to my, my fish are incredibly annoying. Um, and this is, this is highlighted by one particular thing I have to do when I'm doing the research. I, I, I catch them, I put them in tanks and run experiments on them. That's, that's how the science works. Um, and in order to do so, I have to feed them, obviously, and, and clean out the tanks and all of the other things that um, essentially involve standing over the tank, giving a fish food. Um, in a very Pavlovian way, this means the fish associates my presence with food. And then subsequently, whenever I'm standing over the tank, it will essentially ignore whatever experiment has been put in there and wait to be fed. <laughs> so what I end up doing is spending quite a lot of time hiding from fish. <laughs> it's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating. And I thought maybe that this was just the mechanics of what I do and how I do it. Um, until I looked at like, a lot of the names, like the common names of, of fish you get in coral reefs. And I think this might actually be a phenomenon that, that a lot of marine biologists have. And they, just, they just find their fish so annoying. And the reason for this is that actually, I think we just, we just name our fish after animals, just in the vain hope that doing so will make them more like normal animals, and just a little bit easier to study. And so there's, you know, all of these fish, you've got lizard fish, goat fish, um, spade fish, bizarrely. Um, <laughs> what else have we got? We've got, uh, well, catfish, batfish, dogfish, frogfish, hogfish. It starts to sound like something from Dr. Zeus. Um, right, but no. So generally, I think that all marine biologists find their, find their animals infuriating, and that's why we... We name them amusing things. Because, quite frankly, none of them look like any of these animals whatsoever. There's, there's even one called a fox-faced rabbit fish. <laughs> God knows what a fox-faced rabbit would look like, but the fish doesn't look like one. Um, now, b before I leave, I just want to uh, talk to you about something that um, almost never, uh, never gets mentioned when I tell people that I, I study reef fish. Um, and I think people should ask, and this is about you know, sustainability of fish, whether or not you should eat fish, and, and what my opinions on that are, because I think it's a very important um, subject. And what the MSC do is, sorry, the Marine Stewardship Council is, is brilliant. They basically verify fish that are sustainable. If you are going to go buy fish, buy those. They're fantastic. Um, and that's my preachy bit, basically, because I've never been handed a microphone and be able to tell the, the, uh, a room of people that without them answering me back, which is very nice. Um, but just to leave you with one thing, is that while, yes, you should always um, eat sustainably sourced fish, if anybody ever does come up to you and offer you uh, a tasty snack of a, of a cleaner fish, eat the little fucker. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now for a musical interlude and a song from comedian Vicky Stone about everyone's favourite particle physicist. Thank you very much. Why does E equal MC squared and why does Higgs boson like hiding? What is the meaning of life? Please tell me we're more than a few cells dividing. Anne is poor, Schrodinger's cat, alive and well, despite being dead. The man that can answer all this has the stars in his eyes and a brain in his head. He's got big, beautiful lips, a beautiful voice and a beautiful smile. He's got big, beautiful hands and he carries a man bag with far too much style for a particle physicist, subatomic theorist. He was even a mid-90s pop star and pianist. On top of that, he's becoming a silver fox. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Brian Cox. I know, 
I'm supposed to be listening to the theory that the greater the mass, the greater the pull of gravity. But despite the history of general relativity, my black hole's warping whenever you're on TV. So take me on a journey that's interplanetary. We'll stargaze all night, and then maybe you will see that the multiverse combined with the complex string theory dictates there's a dimension where Brian, you will agree to smash your atoms into my dark matter. Give my wormhole a right good batter. Bend me over your periodic table. Make the center of my star unstable. Be my own Mr. Apollo. Give me your Milky Way and I will swallow. I bet you'd make my eyes grow wider if you showed me a large hard-on collider. So let's have a big bang. Let's do it at the speed of light. Professor Brian Cox, I bet that you could go all night. So come on, prof, and split my atom. Make me have a ring like the one round Saturn. Stop ignoring my love letters, cause things can only get wetter. <laughs> I wonder if you wonder if I mean what I've said. Well, like Schrodinger's cat, the way to find out is to take me to bed. No, I don't mean bestiality, I mean observing the reality. Oh, forget about cats, it's confusing enough all this quantum duality. I'm no particle physicist, no atomic theorist, but by singing this song I now hope you know I exist and that I don't exist. Hey Brian, I've been listening. <laughs> And that I would gobble you off in a billion, 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 billion <laughs> of a fucking second, my beautiful scientist. That's called the cock song. Back to the researchers now. And Craig Backer, a mathematician working at the engineering department, talks about the difficulties of crossing over between the two disciplines. Right, so as Nick said, I work in engineering. And one of the things I love about engineering is that there's always such neat projects going on. I mean, in my department there are guys who are designing nuclear reactors and studying jet engines. And, uh, oh, the 12-year-old in me just gets so excited. Um, some of the projects that we work on, though, are a bit more mundane than that. And I had a very interesting example of this a couple weeks ago. So a couple of weeks ago, one of the MPhil students in my group, uh, Daniel, came up to me and he asked me if I would read over his MPhil thesis for him. You know, give him some feedback, proofreading, that sort of a thing. And I thought about it and I said, okay, sure, you know, I'll take a look at this for you. But I didn't actually know anything about what he was working on, so we proceeded to have a very interesting conversation. Um, so, Daniel, uh, what is it exactly that you are working on? design and optimization of a powder inhaler. You're working on inhaling powders. <laughs> it's very interesting. Uh, what kinds of applications are you looking at for that? <laughs> Improved drug delivery to patients. Yes, I can see that. Um, although, you know, they're usually not called patients until after they go into rehab. Um, but okay. Fair enough. Um, Daniel, I do have one more thing that I'm kind of wondering about. Um, where are you getting the money to, to do this project? I mean, who's, who's funding you? A group of Colombian businessmen. <laughs> How about that? Um, now, my work is uh, somewhat less applied than that. Um, also, perhaps less potentially lucrative. Um, I basically do math. And doing math in the engineering department is a bit like playing Beethoven at a death metal concert. <laughs> I mean, we're all sort of making music, but... Um, so more specifically, what I do is I look at optimization on high-dimensional curved spaces. 
and I use mathematical tools to analyze what's going on uh, during these optimization processes. Now, this is very interesting for me. There's some really neat mathematics that's going on here, but it's also very difficult because of the dimensionality. I mean, I'm a very visual, concrete person. I like to be able to see what's going on. Uh, and high-dimensional spaces are notoriously difficult to visualize. And trying to deal with this has sort of illustrated some of the differences between engineers and mathematicians for me. Because I go to the engineers and I say, look, I've got this 16-dimensional problem that I'm trying to visualize. How can I do this? And, well, they've, they've got some tools to do it, but uh, I haven't found them all that helpful, honestly. The mathematicians, however, are even worse. <laughs> so I go to a, a mathematician and I say, look, I've got this 16-dimensional problem. How can, I, how can I picture this space? How can I visualize a 16-dimensional space? And he says, oh, it's easy. It's easy. What do you mean it's easy? Oh, yeah, it's easy. Just picture an n-dimensional space and let n go to 16. <laughs> like I said, not helpful. And I find that I'm caught between these two worlds, between the engineers and the mathematicians. Um, explaining what I do to the engineers is difficult. I mean, I go to a conference, and I've got slide after slide of equations, and I get to the end, and there's just this dead silence. <laughs> yeah, just like that, actually. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've, I've actually thought about bringing crickets along with me, you know, so I can have them just kind of like chirping in the background when this happens. Um, explaining to the mathematicians, however, is pointless because, yes, they understand the math, and actually it's kind of refreshing. Um, you know, I can tell them about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and the applications that I'm looking at for my work. But then they look at me and, and they say, what's an application? <laughs> It's, it's just generally difficult to get people interested in what it is that I do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult enough for me to actually explain what's going on, but I find it's actually more difficult to watch people as I'm trying to explain it to them. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going on and on, on about my stuff, and you, I, just, I see their eyes glaze over. And apparently not everyone enjoys tensor calculus as much as I do. But to be fair, you know, it's, it's not a sexy subject. And this, this is a problem, um, particularly when it comes to meeting women. Um, because when, when most women think about virile manhood, they're not thinking about 16-dimensional spaces. Um, although incidentally, if there are any who do, I will be hanging around after the show. Come find me. Um, there aren't even any exciting hazards associated with what I do. Uh, I mean, with some of the engineering projects, if they went wrong, they could take out the entire engineering building. I'm not kidding. I mean, why do you think they stuck the turbo machinery guys way out in West Cambridge? <laughs> um, and this was actually a problem for me back in first year because I had to fill out a risk assessment form for my PhD, and I didn't know what to put. I mean, it's, it's not like I'm working with the nuclear guys and could put risk of accidental self-sterilization. Uh, incidentally, my supervisor is the radiation safety officer for the engineering department, and uh, he's in the audience, and I'm sure he's giving me a look right now about that last comment. Um, however, what I have realized over the last few years is that my work does have hazards. Uh, they're just not that exciting. So, for example, I have to do some computer programming as part of my research. And so, associated with that, there's, you know, risk of, uh, increased risk of cranial injury due to repeatedly pounding head on desk. <laughs> or increased hair loss due to frustration-induced follicle removal. <laughs> Other issues are associated with the fact that my PhD just takes up a lot of my life. And as, as I think I've made clear, it's pretty geeky. So, you know, if I, if I had to fill out that form again, I could put things like reduced social interaction with other human beings, especially women. Um, although, interestingly enough, I read in a sociology book a while back that humor 
can actually provide an alternative outlet for the sex drive. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, so for the greatest hazard of my PhD, forced acquisition of an overdeveloped sense of humor. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our final performer is Daniel Richardson, a social psychologist at UCL. I asked Daniel how he got into social psychology. I used to mock social psychologists in grad school. We thought they were the soft science people and we made fun of them because I was a cognitive person who studied proper things like language and memory and decision-making processes and they did fluffy things about feelings and other people. But then I ended up being a postdoc at Stanford University and I did an experiment with a social psychologist and she had a prediction about her effect and I told her she was completely wrong and I had my cognitive explanation. And this rarely happens in science that you get this actual sort of budding heads of theories. It turns out I was completely wrong and she was entirely right. And from that moment on I sort of realized that the interesting stuff is not what you do in a lab by yourself when you're remembering stuff or processing language. It's how all this cognitive machinery links up with other people and how you relate to those around you. So what are you working on at the moment? I study language a little bit, and often when psychologists study language, they sort of flash one word on a screen at you at a time. Uh, but again, I'm trying to look at this in a real social interaction. So we have people talking to each other, and we have little motion tracking systems. It's a thing they used to do the CGI in uh, Lord of the Rings. And we put dots all over the people, and they talk to each other, and we quantify how they coordinate their body movements. And we have eye trackers, and they look at two screens that are the same. It's um, pictures of the cast of Friends in one. And people are talking about their favorite episode and we quantify the degree to which they're looking at the same thing at the same time. So we're having a conversation and we use all these mechanisms, all these ways to coordinate our visual attention, coordinate our bodies, to uh, engage in this sort of dance. We're not just exchanging information and all these other levels, we're coordinating and cooperating with each other. So this is the idea that only a small proportion of our communication is actually language, it's actually verbal. Well, yeah, there's a study in the 70s saying that 90% of all communication is non-verbal, but that just seems complete rubbish to me, and I have no idea how you end up with that number. Like, what do you count? Like, what's the information there? Right, if I tell you my uncle is called Brian, how on earth have I signaled that with my body? So, yeah, that, that is, I'm sure that's true, but I have no idea how you actually put a number on this stuff. So we look at decision-making things in a social context as well. And we did some work at the London Science Museum, and these people are interested in game theory and this thing called the prisoner's dilemma. The famous anecdote about Nash is that he was in a bar with some friends, and there was these attractive women across the room, and he had this realization that the optimal thing to do was not to go after the most attractive female in the bar, because everyone would. So what you went for is the second most attractive, knowing that everyone else would go for the more attractive person. And because he was quite smart, he realized that this had implications for all sorts of behaviors because this sort of typical economic model is you go for the best thing all the time and compete over it. But actually, if you take into context the social context, what other people are doing, the optimal thing is to do the suboptimal thing because you're more likely to win. But surely that only works if everyone agrees on what the best thing is or the most attractive woman is. Well, it gets massively complicated very, very quickly because you have to not just make your decision, you have to guess what everyone else is doing and guess how they respond also to your decision. So it really, really quickly spirals out of control because you have to decide not just what you want, but you have to make a guess about what other people want and then act in the context of that, knowing that also they're guessing what you want and acting in the context of that. So this completely simple situation rapidly gets very difficult. Uh, the context that we're studying is these things called public goods games. It's again a situation where you have to make a decision, but you have to make it in the context of everyone else's decision. So the simplest example is if in the kitchen you have a little jar at work and you put 10p in every time you have a cup of tea, and then every month someone goes and buys more tea bags. Now that system works really great, but what you could do is not put any money in at all. Other people buy the tea bags, you get free tea. That's fantastic for you as an individual, but if everyone did that, there's no more tea bags because there's no money. And you get the same thing in theories of traffic and queuing. So, you know, when they shut down, when the motorway goes down to one lane, everyone, if they're nice, quickly moves over to the left and goes very slow. Um, but then you always get one person, normally in a red BMW, who goes very fast all the way along, goes right to the end, then cuts in. That slows down everyone else because it cuts in, so everyone gets worse, but he himself does better. 
But if everyone did that, there would be a huge traffic jam. So when you look at society, when you look at lots of social individuals making these decisions, they're always making these, not just in the context themselves, but having a theory about how the people will act and putting their own decisions in that context. And is this one of those things that sounds horribly complicated when you start trying to analyse it, but actually we're all doing all the time without even realising it? Yes, we are all doing it. We don't know why or how. We don't know whether you're being that strategic. Maybe you're just always nice and that's your strategy. Maybe you're always the nasty one and that's your strategy. Maybe there's a middle ground. Maybe there are some contexts that shift us between. So this has been studied before by people, you know, in cubicles with no paper, imagining the situation, showing where they will go in the traffic. But we think that what's important about these decisions is you're making them multiple times throughout your life and you're learning about what other people are choosing and you're making them in a social context surrounding my people. So all that spiel is the justification for us going to the London Science Museum when they had a zombie-filled weekend where they had out-of-work actors, well, actors, it's the same thing, wandering around in zombie costumes, molesting people at the Science Museum, and all these sort of all this science to do with zombies. So what we did is we used these audience response clickers, these things that you use for multiple choice in lectures, and we hacked into them when we had people playing this game called Compete, Cooperate, or Die. And it was this zombie attack game. And we told everyone that the zombies were attacking and they had two choices. They could choose to fight. And if they fight, that works well if everyone together all fights at once. If you do that, you have a good chance of survival. Or you can choose to hide. Now, hiding is always better if it's only you, right? If it's only you under the bed covers, the zombies won't find you. But if everyone piles under the same bed, the zombies will find you and you will die. So from an individual basis, it's always better to hide, but only if everyone else is actually fighting. So just like the traffic example, you have to do what's best for you, but also figure out what other people are doing. And it, again, spirals out of control because are they following the same strategy? Are they just going to be nice? So we played this game at the Science Museum and people, 40 people in a room, some dressed as zombies, all made these decisions and they kept making them, making them, making them. And it sort of goes in cycles of everyone fights, then one person hides, then everyone decides to hide, and then they decide, no, we should go and fight, and they all go together. And it's a really simple decision, but it's in this social context, and you get such rich behavior. And we even got these bizarre things happening where, you know, we didn't tell them what to do, we just told them to press buttons. But sort of towards the end, in one session that was quite late after they'd been drinking all the time, one section of the crowd stood up and started to yell, everyone fight, everyone fight, come on, fight, fight. And they were shouting at people to stand up and said, if you sit down, we're going to yell at you. They said, everyone fight. So the group was fighting and fighting. But then they confessed to us afterwards, they were shouting this all the time, but they themselves are actually pressing hide throughout the entire thing. Incredibly, you know, clever, strategic, smart behavior that we hadn't predicted, but people were spontaneously engaging in it. And this only comes when you have real people in a room making these actual decisions. It doesn't work if people are just filling in a survey, imagining it. So that's what we try and do in the lab, is to take these sort of simple decisions and put them in a real social context and see the behaviour that emerges. A huge thanks to all the performers on the night, especially Richard Tomset, Max Gray, Vicky Stone, Craig Backer and Daniel Richardson. My name's Ginny Smith and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Now to finish off, here's Daniel's performance on the night. Perhaps I can pick up some tips from him on how to persuade you all to tune in again next time. Hello, hello, good evening. My name's Daniel Richardson and I'm a psychologist. I'm a cognitive psychologist. I do um, social psychology. And what I wanted to talk to you today is about decisions and choices and why we make these things. Um, we like to think that we make these choices, we make these decisions from the inside out, right? We've got our principles, our values, and that's what causes us to choose who we love and who we vote for. We're, we're like little care bears, right? Here are innards that are principles that we follow. That's not true. As a scientist, I can tell you care bears do not exist, and you are not one. It's the outside in. That's where the causal forces happen, right? It's what's around you, including your body. That's what chooses you to make certain things. And these are bizarre experiments, right? These are started in, in the 80s in psychology. And what they did is um, they told people that they were investigating a, a Walkman. Uh, some of you are too young, right? A Walkman is like an iPod, <laughs> but this big and powered by a horse, basically. <laughs> Uh, and it plays bad music. That, that's, and they said, we're going to test these things out and put the headphones on, and we want to see uh, if, they work, if they work while you're jogging. So do this. <laughs> no one jogs like that, but do this, they said. 
Okay. And then said, are we just going to test the headphones? They're just going to play a clip from the radio of some guy talking about tuition fees. And they should go up, right? So just listen to that, do this. Then the other half of people, they said, we're testing these headphones, uh, but pretend you're on a bike like this. <laughs> they listened to the same thing. Then they said, oh, by the way, that's great. By the way, what do you think about the tuition increase? And here's the embarrassing thing for us as a species. The people who were doing this agreed with the sentence. The people who were shaking their heads perceived themselves shaking their heads and were less likely to agree with what's being said. Isn't that depressing for your belief and your own choice? And just thinking about that, I had this vision, which I didn't want to share with you, but I will now, of Nick Clegg's head bobbing up and down in Cameron's lap and Cameron's excessive hammy blood flowing to his loins as he runs his fingers through Clegg's hair contemptuously and whispers, whispers to him about tuition fees. And that is how they make policy. I swear that's what happens. But this is true, it's bodily cues that, it, I wish I hadn't gone through that. It's bodily cues that, that drive all of these things. It happens all the time. Um, you know, never ask someone out at a tennis match. You will go home disappointed like every English person. Ask, ask them out at a, um, at a uppy down, trampoline. Ask them about a, a trampoline festival. Do they have those? Celebrate things going up going down again. Sure, trampoline festival, that's where you ask people out. Uh, and all these bodily cues have an influence on your behavior. If you want to feel confident, then just adopt a confident pose and you will feel more confident. Not, not this. Right? <laughs> that's rakish troubadour about to sing a madrigal. Um, I'm an academic. I don't really do social interaction. I, just, I live in my lab, talk mostly to my iPhone. I don't really know how to act. Um, but all of these Oh, was that sympathy? <laughs> Bless you. Thank you very much. Um, I've completely lost what I was, I was supposed to write my script down on my hand, but then I get all nervous and itchy and I'd end up just performing eczema. <laughs> Coming soon to BBC Three. Um, so there's all these influences. Everything your body does, you perceive, and then that determines what you do. Uh, but it's not just your body, right? It's also all the cues around you. And if, if you're good at persuasion, if you're a persuasion expert, this is what you know how to use. Uh, so people think that you think about persuasion and debate, and you think of it as like a wrestling match, as a, as a battle of ideas. You think of it's a sumo wrestling match between John Prescott and Eric Pickles, grunting at each other, wrestling, and... Prescott's man nappy slips, a testicle drops out like a melon in a hessian bag, pickles punches it. That's what you think when I say persuasion. I'm a psychologist, I've got brain things, and, and I know it's not just me. Apparently when I'm nervous, I generate pornographic images with government officials. I don't know why, because none of this was in the set this morning. But this is what happens. Um, does explain why I yelled out Tony Blair handjob at my wedding, which didn't go down. Well, <laughs> lost, lost the plot again. So, uh, yeah, persuasion. That's what people think persuasion is. It is. But it's not. Good persuasion, it's like those, uh, those samurai movies, right, where the guy is standing there and the samurai walks past him and there's, <laughs> there's just a flick of motion. The samurai turns the corner, the guy looks down, and he sees he's been cut in half, and flump, his body falls open. That is what good persuasion is like. The, the battle is over before you even know it's begun. And you can see this in tiny ways, right? There's now people have a job designing menus. This is what you do if you're a failed psychologist. You design menus for a living. And they figured all this out, right? If you go to a, um, a restaurant and there's the wine list and it has 10-pound bottle of wine, 12-pound bottle of wine, then the waiter says, oh, I recommend the 30-pound bottle of wine. You say, no, I will have a pint of Libra, Frau Milk, and fuck off, right? No one is persuaded by that. So what do they do? They have a 40-pound bottle of wine, a 40-pound bottle of wine, then a 30-pound bottle of wine. And that seems more reasonable, right? Not cheap, right? But reasonable, because there's always one slightly lower that you would avoid. They frame the decision, and it's the frame that makes the choice. That's the key thing. Because we think, you know, that you can give people ideas. You can't tell people what to think. You can't draw pictures in their head, but you can draw a frame around it, such that what one person thinks is infinity is just a lonely pair of tits. And that is samurai persuasion. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with my, this one time, which was, it was a personal victory of my mind over my body, but a complete failure of my mind against someone else. I, was, I had a samurai hit 
And this is what happened. Um, I was uh, flying, for, I used to live in California, and I came to Reading for a job interview, which just saying it sounds stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I swear there was a reason. Um, so I left Palo Alto <laughs> and came to Reading to be interviewed for this job that, that I really wanted for some reason. And, and on the plane, what happened, I, I was bored and I yawned like this and someone sneezed in my mouth. <laughs> and it was a bit like those minty sprays that <laughs> only rather than sort of minty and refreshing, it was sort of warm and gelatinous and <laughs> tiny bit eggy. And it landed in my mouth, and, and my wife is, uh, for her, it's toothbrushes. It doesn't matter, our toothbrushes are the same, that's hers, this is mine, they're separate. For her, it's toothbrushes, for me, it's phlegm, right? <laughs> we all have the same phlegm, but it's important that yours stays with you and mine stays with me. And by the time I got off the plane, my throat was like this, and I couldn't speak. I know this sounds like an 80s sitcom premise, right? But honestly, this time, I couldn't say anything at all, just... <laughs> I sound like Jimmy Savile putting back on his track pants. That's the only way I could communicate. That's not a memory, by the way. I'm imagining. Um, so again, distracted myself, and the sympathy is gone. Um, so I couldn't say anything, and so I walked up, and, and of course they're English, so they can't cut out the small talk at all. How are you? <laughs> right, there was no shortcuts at all. I found that if I glugged water, I could sort of uh, burp and, and gargle my answers to people. So this is what we did. Did you have a nice flight? <laughs> and this is how we had a two-hour job interview. And there are regulations where you have to ask the same questions. So this was two hours, and I was glugging this water back. They filled up the jugs three times. And halfway through, I spotted the floor in my plan. <laughs> As it felt like a beach ball was tucked inside my pants. After about half an hour, I had this mental image of one of those space hoppers with a wristwatch around the middle. <laughs> and I realized I need to undo my belt. Because if not, it's going to be like in scanners, but not the guy's head exploding. It's going to be my, my nethers. My nether regions are going to fly out and land in their face. And I've never got a job interview after my innards have flown out and landed on someone's face before. So I thought, well, how, how can I do this? How can I, you can't just undo your belt. Um, but then I had an idea that I know what I'll do is build it into my natural thinking gestures. <laughs> so by now the urine had reached my brainstem because this seemed like it was gonna work. You know, because people go, well, Dave, I don't know, or Marjorie, that's tough. So I just said, well, Glenn, uh, let's run it up the flagpole. <sighs> And the relief I felt was almost shared by the people with me. I was sweating with the muscular effort of keeping this urine inside me. But we kept, we kept going. She just kept asking questions. Uh, so will you pursue international uh, collaborations? Good, good, good. Yes. Uh, do you have an articulated research plan? Good, good, good. Yes. Where do you see yourself in five years' time? Still peeing. <laughs> But we kept going, like the whole room, we're all together willing me through this. And, and eventually we, we reached the end and the lady said, okay, well that's all, but I bet you need a wee now, don't you? <laughs> so I staggered out like those people at office parties with balloons between their legs and, and went to the cubicle. We're not gonna go into what happened there, but just to tell you, it was, it was a profoundly existential experience, really. Never has so much matter left my body. I felt like I could slip between moments in time. It was amazing. Moments ago, I was so full and swollen, and now I was shriveled and, and spent, and I, I felt like the used condom of a Norse god. <laughs> that is honestly what it felt like. And then the phone rang. <laughs> and it was Brighton University. Hello, is that Dr. Richardson? No, I am Odin's sheath. <laughs> Yes, hello, Stanford. And, and it was Brighton who I'd, I'd interviewed by the phone, and they offered me a job. And uh, so I walked back into Reading feeling quite smug because I had not wet myself, and that's a good day. <laughs> and sat down, and the lady opposite the, the dean said, um, well, uh, we'd like to offer you the job too. But the thing is, Brighton had offered me the job of a senior lecturer above the job that he interviewed for. So I was feeling 
quite smug at this point because I was dry and I just got this job off of moments before. Um, so I told her, oh, that's very interesting. You offered me the job as a lecturer. Actually, Brighton have just offered me the senior lecturer position. And then she looked at me. And this is where there was a flick of a sword that I didn't even notice. And she said, oh, really? Well, I suppose Brighton would have to offer you that, wouldn't they? Uh, I, I didn't know what happened. <laughs> so I thought about it. And why, why would Brighton have to offer me that? They know I'm interviewing at Reading. They think maybe Reading will offer me a job. And they know, I guess, that if Reading offer me a job, I'll take it. So they feel they have to compete and offer me a higher one. Why would they, why would they have to do that? Why would they have to offer me a higher job? They must know that they really suck. <laughs> they know how bad they are and that no one would choose them over Reading. Well, fuck you, Brighton, with your top quality science by the sun. Fuck you. I won't fall for your game. I will take you, Reading, with distressed bladder agony <laughs> and proximity to Swindon. I will choose this job, screw you, Biden, I win, and I will take that job. And that's when I looked down and saw my body split open. <laughs> that was the samurai attack. And I give you these skills of samurai persuasion, use them wisely. Thank you for your patience. Good night. <laughs>